Been a great night, honorator. Honor- <laughs> um, I'm just going to start over because none of that was good. All right. I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Show. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is April 11th, 1988, just a little under four months before I was born. And we are at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, California, where we are presenting the 60th annual Academy Award statuettes to the best films of 1987. And it is time for the big award of the night, the envelope, please. Uh, And the winner is... The Last Emperor, Jeremy Thomas, producer. Welcome back to another episode of The Envelope, Please, a podcast where we watch and discuss every Best Picture Oscar winner in chronological order. And we're your hosts. I'm Sam. I'm Rance. I love that you said that we have now moved to the Shrine Auditorium. This is kind of the only note that I have for our ceremony. We're in a new locale. And this is so interesting because... This was such a change-up from, you know, the traditions of past always being at uh, the Dorothy Chandler that a lot of the drivers for the celebrities got lost on the way to the shrine in downtown L.A. Apparently, they had no clue where they're going. Remember, this is before smartphones, before Google Maps, before all that, you know, extra handy stuff. So they all got lost, I guess. So actors like Cher, Meryl Streep, and a, a really pregnant Glenn Close just decided to ditch their cars, and they walked to the venue on foot so they could make it somewhat on time i think that's hilarious <laughs> yeah it, it's uh it's really funny but this is a, a gorgeous venue it had been around since uh it was opened in 1926 apparently oh. um and it is uh it is it's a beautiful venue and um pretty much until we go to the dolby we're gonna switch between the shrine and the dorothy chandler So you're going to see a lot of both um, in the next decade and a half before we head over to what was then called the Kodak, is now called the Dolby uh, uh, Theater. Um, At least I think it's still called the Dolby. Wasn't there almost a change-up a couple years ago? I think there was. No, I think you're right. I honestly, I don't think I've been on Hollywood Boulevard in quite some time, so I'm not even sure what it's called. I think it still says Dolby on the front, though. I think it does. Not since the days you used to play Spider-Man, right, on the sidewalk? Correct. (laughs) You got a dollar? Come take your picture. (laughs) Wow, you're only charging a dollar? You must have been really sad. (laughs) Spider-Man. Um... This uh, ceremony is interesting because it took place during the writer's strike yes. of 1988, which um, was uh, a strike that put, you know, it made it to where there were a lot of weeks that new episodes weren't airing of television shows and, you know, stalling on various films and whatnot. But it also made it to where there were no guild writers who could work on material uh, for Chevy Chase for the ceremony. And, of course, Chevy Chase was in the WGA, so he couldn't um, write his own material <laughs> for that is it. so wild. So there is, um, there's, he has an, a monologue that makes reference to that, um, that has some jokes about that. And um, 
And he also does reference the fact that Glenn Close is uh, pregnant, mentioning that she brought her obstetrician with him, with her, um, <laughs> uh, you know, just in case. Um, there are, um, this is an interesting, uh, ceremony, um, because it is the 60th and anytime we get an anniversary year, we do get a plethora of old stars, of course, uh, showing up. Um, and just when you watch the opening, um, with Chevy Chase, they flash the audience and you see a close up of Celeste Holm. You see, uh, you see Joan Fontaine. In the audience, and that's really interesting because one of the presenters is her sister, um, who she's who she supposedly was not speaking with at this point in time, uh, Olivia de Havilland. And apparently, when the Academy invited them both, um, somebody put them right next to each other in the hotel, in, oh my. A, in adjoining or next door rooms, adjoining right. rooms, something. Whatever happened, uh, Joan Fontaine was so furious about the way that she was treated by the academy that she never went to an oscar ceremony again oh my so, god <laughs> jesus i know That's intense. And she didn't pre- she was just a guest i don't she didn't uh present or anything she probably was upset about the fact that she didn't present and her sister did too oh, i'm sure oh, i I'm mean sure. um there's also you can find on youtube there is a magnificent montage they show of clips from all of the ceremonies up to this point Ooh. that Charlton Heston introduces um, that includes, you know, just all the big, you know, like the streaker and, and yes. you know, our, our favorite thing in the world, which is um, uh, Ingrid Bergman saying, it's a tie. tie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it's so good. <laughs> you know, even Marie Saint saying that she might have the baby right there. You know, like all oh, the... Good. All the good stuff, but it also, I was very happy to see, included Greer Garson saying the words, Star Wars! (laughs) Just randomly in the middle of it. Um, So please go look up that um, amazing, amazing montage. Um, And uh, of the Chevy Chase opening monologue jokes, the only thing that I I really think is worth uh, quoting is he he says that you know the winners are only known by Price Waterhouse, and then he mentions like, and what's her face in the office, and you know her her husband, and you know the kids, and of course me and all of my family, and, and <laughs> you know he, he does he does the whole thing, and then he says the winners will be chosen by the following criteria: you're old and you haven't won one yet. Um, yes, <laughs> if you're if you're young and funny and her name begins with Steve or Steven, you are ineligible for an Oscar. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> if you live in the neighborhood and your movie is up for Best Picture, you cannot be nominated for Best Director. Um, <laughs> Accurate. Um, if you are in a fitness video series or if you um, uh, do promos for fitness clubs, you are eligible. And... Um, the uh, beards are in, and then he puts on a fake noses and say that fake noses won't do. Um, Aww, and then poor he goes, Steve right. Martin. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of yes. attacks in there for Steve there's Martin. There's a lot of, there's a lot. Well, I mean, you know, they made um, Three Amigos together around this time. Oh, you're right. So I, I think that, that it was all in good fun. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, and then one more note: uh, mm. the f- 
Irving Thalberg Award is given, finally, Hmm. to Billy Wilder. Wonderful. About time. I love that. Yes. Um, And Jack Lemmon presents that to him, which is only appropriate. Should. Yes. Uh, Yes. Uh, Beautiful. Um, That feels right. So, you know, it took a while for Oscar to get there, but I mean, nobody's perfect. We got there. We got there in the end. Oscar takes a while for a lot of things. So on that topic, let's talk about some snubs. Uh, those who were not recognized this year that I feel like we should. So I only have three. Go. Uh, and they're kind of specific. So my first one is for The Evil Dead 2. Oh. I think it should have snuck into special effects and the makeup especially. Mark Shostrom's makeup in Evil Dead 2 is incredible. I feel like when you walk away from watching this movie... There's also only two nominees for Best Makeup, so I mean... I mean, look, if Henry and and the Hendersons can be an Oscar winner, Evil Dead 2 can be an Oscar winner. That's That's all I'm going to say about that. Because that's what you walk away seeing. I mean, the makeup in that movie is so grotesque and intense and stylized that it kind of creates the movie in itself. So I think that should have been recognized. Um, I think for... In the supporting actor category... I would have liked to have seen uh, Ronald Lee Ermey for Full Metal Jacket. He is a drilling sergeant in the first part of that movie. And I think he sets the tone perfectly for the film. Full Metal Jacket is such a weird and random Vietnam movie. I mean, we've talked a lot about the Vietnam War in the last couple of episodes and how the films we've talked about take it very seriously. And while Full Metal Jacket does take it seriously, there is a humor to the movie that is very important to keep you going. It's... Um, almost satire, but not quite. And I think um, Ermi's performance in the beginning sets that up because he's such an overly heightened drill sergeant that you can't imagine someone like this actually exists, and it's a little funny. So I think he should have been recognized. And my final one is one that I... (sighs) Just makes me so sad. Just makes me so sad. It's for screenplay, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. There's your other hand. Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. I think this is John Hughes' best movie. It has the best cast and the best screenplay of any of his films. And I think screenplay would have been the easiest place to nominate it. But I also would have thrown John Candy and Steve Martin in there for leading actor nominations. This movie is so damn charming and is funny every time you watch it. It's heartwarming every time you watch it. And a lot of that has to do with the screenplay and the chemistry between the leads. Those are my two cents. Um, I'm going to start in screenplay with my okay. snubs because this is this is easy. Um, I I don't understand <laughs> why the Princess Bride isn't there. I almost <laughs> put that down. I almost had Princess Bride as a snub. I'm glad you mentioned I mean, it, yes. I get it that the Academy isn't going to put it in a lot of the other categories, but that would have been a good place to place it. It also would have been uh, makeup, once again. Mm-hmm. You know, I th- you know the way that they, um, particularly with like Billy Crystal in the movie, there's some really great um, transformations of some famous people in that film, I oh, think. Yeah. Um, so it's very odd to me that, uh, and I, I realize it's kind of become a cult classic, and maybe at the time, the reception, I think it's grown in reputation over the years, but it's just weird to me. I think a, a screenplay nom would make a lot of sense there. Yeah. 
Um, because it's a uh, delightful and funny. Well, and the and whole totally movie is about storytelling. You know what I mean? The whole thing is about telling a good story. So I think it is, right. and it's unlike anything else, in my opinion, that that's ever been made. It is yeah. a, a story completely of its own. Yeah. Um, in the screenplay category, that should be there, but is also criminally unre- underrepresented in lots of other places, is Au Revoir Les Enfants. Mm-hmm. Which is the Louis Mal married to Candace Bergen, um, French <laughs> film. <laughs> um, <laughs> not anymore because he he died, but gotcha. um, he was uh, up until his death married to Candace Bergen, um, and uh, the movie is about uh, two boys in a boarding school, and one of the boys is Jewish, and one is. Um, is uh, uh, um, Catholic, um, and they um, they are in France, and um, the Jewish boy is being hidden mm. there in order to avoid abduction from um, the Nazis during the occupation, and um, it's just a, a harrowing. Mm. very depressing absolutely heart-wrenching story Mm. um and it did it was nominated for best foreign language film it didn't win when um but uh i think it should have been in the best director and best picture categories and yeah you know uh you can pick what you think needs to be taken out I, by I hope f- and glory <laughs> let it be known um, we need to make this known as well that Rance is recommending a war film thank you <laughs> I am it's it's back in World War II but this is also it's not on the front it's not about right, right, right. it's not about battle <laughs> it's, it's a about, more humane it's just, story it's, of war <laughs> and it's a and it's a French foreign language film so this is um, quite the, the French know what they're doing they know what they're doing. And Louis Maul is a great filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I that is a snub for me in picture and director. I also, I guess, Broadcast News directed itself, because it's also not in Best Director. <laughs> <laughs> Shady. <laughs> Which is so bizarre to me, because... It, I realize it's a comedy, but it's it's funny it gets to picture, but it doesn't get to director for me because it is a very the reason Brooks is the reason the movie works. Like I don't. Well, I, I he, feel like okay, I feel like the Academy thought the movie works because of the the cast and the ensemble, and that is where a lot of the nominations for broadcast news come from. But I agree with you. I do think this movie is directed wonderfully. But an ensemble doesn't get that. I mean, like the timing yeah. and the the pace of the movie is so good, and it's unique. It's so different from from other movies in a similar genre in a similar genre as that. You know, definitely, yeah. Um, and it's it's a it's a satire, which is a whole other. I'll, I'll get to broadcast news in a second. I have oh yeah, we will talk at length um, about that later. <laughs> okay, but um, uh, I got two more things here. Okay. I got three more. I got three more things. I have a lot of. I, there's a lot of problems I apparently have with the nominations this year. Rance wants to rewrite the entire nomination list. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen 
Uh, I don't know where to put this. Maybe this is a screenplay nomination, but a movie that I watched a lot when I was growing up because it used to play on cable all the time and which I think a lot of people my age know about and have seen a bunch of times that is a really, really good movie about a, about a, a biography of a person who might have been lost to history otherwise um, called La Bamba. And huh. La Bamba is about Richie Valance, and he was one of the three singers, along with uh, Buddy Holly, um, who went down in the airplane the day the music died, as they called it. And he was a pioneering Mexican-American rock and roll artist. And um, he uh, is... Uh, it's its just a really, really good... Um, like, uh, how do I put it? Um, a rock and roll biography. Biopic? Yeah, okay, Biopic, cool. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, then... This is, you're not, you're probably not going to agree with me, um, but uh, I am not going to say the obvious thing here. Um, I think that The Whales of August is a really sweet film. There we it go. It stars, it's Betty Davis's second to last film, and it is the last film of, of Lillian Gish, um, Anne Southern, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And um, it is one of the last performances of Vincent Price. It is a very small movie. It's very sweet. It wants to kind of be on Golden Pond, but it doesn't get there. Um, But I think that Lillian Gish, for being 93 when she made this movie, um, does a very good job of holding the film up. And I would have liked to have seen her represented uh, as much as a, a nod for her incredible career, um, especially even though it is a stat ca- category, I mean, I I don't know if this is one of Meryl Streep's strongest nominations. I don't know. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> Drawing a line in the sand. <laughs> I actually, I, um, I am completely fine with the Best Actress category. I mainly just wanted to mention that Lillian Gish is lovely in her 90s in this performance. Um, maybe not Oscar-worthy, but she's great. Um, but actual snubs for acting categories, I think for both, um, well, for three different people, because uh, apparently The Last Emperor also acted itself. The way that <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up. Yeah, totally. Go ahead. Um, because there are no acting nominations for the Last Emperor, um, and yet I think the main performance from John Lone um, is uh, you know, there's actually four different people who play um, the main character, the Last Emperor, in the movie. But I think he's the one who's the thread who's there the whole time and he's in the present day and he's in the flashbacks and um he does a great job aging once they get to him and i think he gives a great performance um but i i think i would put in the supporting actress race joan chen there we as, go. Yeah. as his um wife his first wife yes. uh, well not first wife his, his number main one wife, wife. yeah, his not his wife. number two, <laughs> yeah, um, because she does a very good job playing the character, but then she has a scene towards the end when she's succumb- succumbing to opioid, yeah. um, opium addiction, 
um, opioids are crisis in America, not <laughs> um, <laughs> opium addiction. And she, I, I, she blew me away in that scene. I thought she yeah. was so good. Um, and also, I mean, I think I would have snuck Peter O'Toole in as supporting actor. I don't know. He's pretty good in the movie. Yeah, he actually really is. He's very charming, and everything he's. I don't know. His diction is so something about the way he speaks in this movie. It just blows me away. I don't know. His voice I is really, great. I really like his presence in the film. I really yeah. do. Um, but um, but that said, I'm not quite sure. I, I probably would take out the Moonstruck nomination if I was mm. going to take out a supporting actor nomination because I, I like Albert Brooks, Morgan Freeman, Denzel being here. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to take away Sean Connery's Oscar, so... You probably shouldn't. <laughs> probably shouldn't. Because it's Sean Connery. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's my... Um, those those are my mini, mini 1987 snubs. Okay, well, here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break off into a spotlight because you brought up Meryl Streep and Ironweed. Oh, so no. I would like to talk about Meryl Streep in Ironweed. <laughs> okay, and here's what you said, though. You were like, you wanted to sneak someone into the best actress category. We can throw Lillian Gish in there. Maybe we'll pull Meryl Streep out because I kind of think this is a little category fraud. I think Meryl fits better in supporting actress for really? Ironweed. I do. This is mainly Jack Nicholson's, Jack Nicholson's movie. Nicholson's movie. Yes. Yeah, this is okay. really Jack Nicholson's film. And he gives a really good performance in this movie. This is kind of a, I don't know, I feel like people really haven't heard of this film. I know a lot of people kind of get Ironweed and Silkwood mixed up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nothing. They're very similar titles. But this is actually a pretty good movie. So it's about these two characters, Francis and Helen. That's Jack Nicholson. They're both materials. They're both like a mashup of two materials. That's so true. <laughs> or, yes. or, two, or two things. Very true. You know, they're, just, yes. they're just random nouns put together. Precisely, yes. And both like two syllables. Yeah, it's very confusing. Yes. Okay. Um, so this is Iron about Weed. Francis and Helen. Ironweed's actually three syllables, but it's fine. Ironweed. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> Ironweed. Yikes, yikes, yikes. <laughs> Why is the English language so hard? <laughs> okay, okay, Iron Proceed. Weed. So this is about Nicholson and Streep, who are two homeless drunks, essentially, and they get back together with one another in the years following the Great Depression, and then they spend their days basically just trying to forget about their demons of the past before everything catches up with them. Um, very dark, very dramatic, um, just a really depressing film. But I do think this is kind of category fraud. This really is about Jack Nicholson's character. Um, but this does, have, and this is why I wanted to bring this up, and this is why I do think Meryl still should be nominated somewhere, because this does have one of my favorite Meryl Streep scenes in any movie. I think it's amazing. So let me set this up for you. This is uh, the part of the movie where she sings a song. She has a number in this film called He's Me Pal. He's me pal, he's me pal, there ain't nobody else I can see. I know he's dead tough, but his love is no bluff. He'd share his last dollar with me, wouldn't ya? And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so Helen and Francis, they decide to go, go to a bar to get some proper drinks to feed their addiction. And there's a man playing a piano in the bar, and Francis kind of coaxes Helen to get up and perform one of her old 
uh, numbers from her vaudeville days. And at first, she's you know kind of pushes back because after all the years of drinking, her voice isn't what it used to be, and she's gotten shy. But eventually, she gets she gives in. So she gets up on the stage and starts to sing, and it's absolutely marvelous. I mean, everyone stops what they're doing. They all start to watch her, they're cheering her on, and then slowly we start to see her get more confident as the song moves on, and eventually she's, you know, walking out into the crowd, and she's talking with the people, kind of engaging them in the performance, and it just seems like, oh, she is in her element, this is what she should be doing, and then the tables turn, and we realize we've been watching inside her head, so the camera Uh. pulls back. And we see what it actually looks and sounds like. He's me proud. He's me Her voice is scratchy. It's clearly damaged. She has no stage presence. No one's really watching. And those that are are kind of giving her a, like a confused look. Like, what is this woman doing up here? So finally the number ends and no one claps. So she sits down and she's so embarrassed and she's just defeated. And to me, that kind of sums up the whole movie. That's kind of how you feel throughout this entire film. And I don't know, there's just something about that scene where you see that switch in Meryl's eyes from this wonderful performance to realizing, oh, this, I can't do this anymore. I just, Mm. I can't do it anymore. And I just think, oh, it's breathtaking. It's super breathtaking. And... And we get to see Meryl Streep sing. And any movie where she sings is okay in my book. <laughs> um, this is not the first time she has sung on film. True um, that. But this is know. definitely the first time we hear her pipes. Like, when she's singing in the version in her head where it's really, really good, like, you're like, oh, Meryl can sing, you know? And she can. She was Just you know, so trained. everyone is clear, Sam would buy the album if she ever chose to release one. Would <laughs> 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 buy anything. <laughs> So yeah, I think Justice for Meryl Streep and Ironweed, she's great. Maybe supporting nomination. Um, But uh, yeah, I just want people to go out and watch this movie. I think people would really like it. It's kind of a hidden gem in Meryl Streep's um, archive. You know, it's funny because I don't think the film, this fits the film at all, but the the movie poster for Ironweed is is interesting because it it does the whole Nicholson Streep Ironweed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which to me yeah. is like what you do for like an action movie. Oh my and... god, true. <laughs> but it does not have their first names on the poster. It's Nicholson and Streep. Yeah, their uh, last names can sell a movie, literally. <laughs> well, I guess your your girl has hit that point in her career where she is she can be a. Although Meryl, it, it seems like is the name we. I oh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, we are on a first name basis with her. <laughs> we are. Um, so that was a spotlight. It was. Um, How about you? Is there anything you want to highlight today? Oh, um, yes, uh, highlights magazine. Um, it what helped a gem. me in the dentist's office so many times. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I would like to spotlight. Um, the movie, and I'll, I'll focus on one aspect of it, but I really like broadcast news. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I really like broadcast news is because I I like the news industry, and I am interested in the news industry. And every time there has been anything about it, like I watched the newsroom, I watched, uh, I, I love network, you know. Um, 
I love anything that is tackling um, that uh, Frost Nixon, like anything that's like tackling, you know, um, journalism, journalism. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, I got you. And it took me that long to get to that word, even though I was a journalism major in college. You sure were. You um, sure were. <laughs> um, so, so, of course, this movie automatically speaks to me. But I am such a big fan of Jel- James L. Brooks as a filmmaker. Um, I love I love his, his um, writing style. Um, I love uh, the, the intelligence and the dialogue and the wit um, that go into all of his projects, um, like especially we talked about a couple years ago, Terms of Endearment, which is such a good example of his work. And I think that broadcast news might be superior to, um, I know, to oh, uh, oh. Terms of Endearment. Um, it's a bold sentence. I know it is a bold sentence. It certainly <laughs> has not had the same cultural impact, and <laughs> right. it isn't a tearjerker. But it is a movie that is about ambition and trust. And, um, you know, basically the story has to do with Holly Hunter. She's a news producer. And um, it's kind of this triangle between her and this um, more uh, seasoned, but not as, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not as uh, charismatic. Mm-hmm. journalist and his um less experienced um counterpart but the very good looking and charismatic um William Hurt so it's Albert Brooks and William Hurt um and and everybody in this ensemble is great they were all nominated um Albert Brooks very rarely makes movies that he didn't write and direct himself and so this is one of the few times you get to see him um doing someone else's work um, and he, this is one of his better performances. It's really interesting to me. I think that maybe there was a little bit of category fraud here because I don't, his and William Hurt's roles are not that different in size. Would you agree with me? I would agree um, with that. And, and yet they're. <laughs> I know, right? right Isn't it funny how they put the more charismatic one in the leading category? And I the know, less charismatic one supporting. Isn't that funny? Oh, Hollywood! But I we feel like you. the movie. I feel like the movie is more about Albert Brooks than it. I, it's it's interesting. It's a weird. Well, but or the Holly is, Hunter, really. But the movie is Holly Hunter's <laughs> yes. film, and that's where I wanted to land because I really like Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter yes. has a very interesting run in the late '80s, early '90s. We, of course, will get to her Oscar win um, and double nomination. In, uh, in a few years. Um, but it's so interesting to me because Holly Hunter has a voice that is unlike anyone else before or since. She has the thickest southern accent of anyone in existence. And there's absolutely no reason why you would associate somebody who has... Um, such a distinct voice, um, such a distinct Southern accent with, with, um, how, how am I, how am I putting this delicately? Um, Mm -hmm. they, movies tend to steer, as a Southerner, movies (laughs) tend to, to stereotype, um, people who are very obviously Southern 
as being dumb and hickish and rednecks. And you get, like, deliverance out of accents, usually. Southern accents. And this movie allows Holly Hunter to not only have her natural accent, but be intelligent and ambitious and assured. You missed him! We only have ten minutes left. How can you talk to me about parking problems? No, not your try. You'll do it. Do it! Or I'll fry your fat ass still. Goodbye! And I really like that they didn't make her sound Midwestern to play this part, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and that we get authentic Holly Hunter just being Holly Hunter. And she's plucky and she's adorable and she um, absolutely nails this role. Um, but the, I, I, I think the thing, the reason it works and the reason it feels authentic is because she feels like an authentic person. She doesn't feel... Um, like something, uh, you know, it's such an interesting contrast to Faye Dunaway's producer character in Network, yes. which has the her mid-Atlantic accent and it's operatic almost mm-hmm. in style. And then we get this movie, which is a different tone, still about broadcast news, um, but you get a character who uh, is far more grounded and real and really does feel like um, the girl next door um authentically american if you will yeah. southern american at that um so yes i just like that i i just like i just like the movie a lot i think it's a very good film it and is a i like really holly hunter i like holly hunter in the film so i'm very i don't know i i don't think she's my winner but i do think i'm very supportive her her nomination here and oh that's yeah off Definitely, I couldn't agree more. And Broadcast News is a great movie, and it it did have the second highest number of nominations going to this ceremony. Not Best Director. But not Best Director, but it did have seven <laughs> nominations. But there was one film that had more nominations, nine. Yes. yes. And that was The Last Emperor. So this is the first movie to win nine for nine. It went nine for nine since Gigi back in 58. Um, Yeah, this movie completely swept the Oscars, which is kind of rare. I was doing some reading about this, and um, it kind of baffled people, mainly because this wasn't like a huge blockbuster film. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about a lot of epics so far in this podcast, and it seems like all the epics that do win Best Picture i.e. Lawrence of Arabia, you know, in terms of that, or Bridge in the River Kwai, these huge war epics, they always do so well at the box office. And I'd say The Last Emperor didn't do well. It did make its money back and then some, but it didn't have huge numbers like these past epics have. It was kind of a quieter film that went into it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it did still win 9 for 9 is kind of kind of crazy. So let me break this down for you guys. The plot of The Last Emperor, simply put, this is a story of Puyi, who was China's last emperor. But more importantly, this is about all the changes that China goes through as a country throughout the early 1900s and all the way through World War II. That's Mm -hmm. the main focus of this film. 
Um, so you were watching it for the first time, Rams. This was your first time yes. watching it. Yes. What did you think? Um, you know, I actually really, I really liked it. Yeah. Um, I, um, I have to say it is, um, you know, I, I'm going to preface here. Like, I would love the movie to be a half hour, 45 minutes shorter. Yeah. Um, I, because I, um, the 80s has made me really allergic to movies that are three hours or bordering on three hours. Yes. Because <laughs> there's so many. And the Academy seems to be a really big fan of long movies at this point mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has to do with the Academy, with this general feeling, I, I think, that was happening at the time, that length equals prestige. Yes. Um, and, um, and I do think that sometimes, you know, brevity um, is, uh, is more effective. But this movie is trying to bite off a lot. Um, you know, it is a biographical film that is dealing with the entirety of someone's life. And um, that's uh, always a tall order. And I think it's really interesting that this movie takes the same approach that, um, that uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia did um, where you, where you start at a later point and then you, Mm -hmm. you keep flashing back. Um, it seems as almost as if David Lean almost created a template that then became how we handled biographical dramas from there on out. Sure. Um, well, same with Gandhi, too. And Gandhi. Gandhi. That was the mm-hmm. other one that did the same thing. Um, this one does more back and forth between present day and flashback than those movies do. But um, but it... Uh, it's really effectively done um and most i think the reason the movie really really works um and part of it has a lot to do with um has a lot to do with the fact that they were able to use the actual locations the real forbidden city yeah the real forbidden city but the visuals in this movie mm-hmm. the shots mm-hmm. The atmosphere, mm. the art direction, the re- it won these Oscars for a reason. Absolutely, the, the art direction, the costume design, the um, uh, the the music that gives you the atmosphere—it's all so stellar. Um, and I, this is one of the most visually interesting movies I think I've ever seen. Um, there's oh, definitely. It, every shot is a piece of is a piece of art. Very that. And also the the coloring of this, too, is super important. You know, he colors the film differently with flashbacks versus present day, which I know is kind of common now, but he does it a little differently. Like, it's very, like, gray tones, very cool colors for the present day when he's going through um, prison and the re... What do they call it? Where you're reintroducing you back into society. They're re... Oh, I can't think of the word now. Um... Anyway, and then the the flashback, so it's almost like there's like a golden, reddish kind of tint to the coloring of the photography and the flashbacks, and it works really, really well. The, the word I kept seeing pop up over and over again as I was reading reviews and people's think pieces about this movie was, this movie is a feast. You are getting 
breakfast, lunch, dinner, three course meals every single time watching mm-hmm. this movie. It holds mm-hmm. nothing back. I mean, I think I read somewhere they use like nineteen thousand extras for this movie. Like that's stupid. It's it's decadent. It's It's so decadent. Very that. But it it all works. You know, it really does. I agree with you. I think this movie works really, really well. My absolute favorite part of this movie, and I watched this a few years back, and eh, it was kind of neither here nor there about it, but when I rewatched it for this recording, the ending of this movie really got me. I think it's the best ending I've seen in a while, you know, we get him going back to the Forbidden City as an old man, and he, you know, walks up and he sees his his throne, the chair he used to sit in, I think it's called the Dragon Throne, he used to sit in, and right about when he's about to sit on the chair, this little boy stops him and tells him, you can't sit there. You are not allowed to sit. Who are you? I live here. I'm the son of Guardian. Ah, well, I used to live here too. That is where I sat. Who are you? I was the emperor of China. And they have this funny back and forth, and he's proving to this kid, he has to prove to this kid somehow that he was once the emperor. And from behind the throne, he pulls out the little container that he was given as a kid himself, and inside is the grasshopper. And when that grasshopper came out, I'm getting chills right now, actually, talking about oh, it. Oh, it was it really it, it gave got me, me. It gave me so, so, so many chills. It really got me. I was like, yeah. this this proves everything. The grasshopper's still alive. He's, I was like, ah, this is good. That is genius filmmaking. I thought that was brilliant. It was, it's such a beautiful moment. Yeah, um, it's fantastic. God, it, I mean, it really is a great, it is a great film. I, I really yeah. do think so. And I think it tells um, the history and the story of China really well, too. Yeah, I mean, w- w- this movie literally shows how China moved out of imperialism and into present-day communism. Like, that's a lot to tackle for a movie, but this one does it well. And what's really, really interesting, too, about this being an epic and a biopic is... Normally with these epic films like Gandhi or your Lawrence of Arabia, the main character is the one creating the change, right? They're the ones fighting. But the cruel joke about The Last Emperor is Puyi has no power. He Mm -hmm. makes no change. All the change is happening around him. In fact, he's Mm -hmm. even being used as a pawn by other people. Um, to enforce these new changes, which is really, really interesting. You know, yeah. like, he literally, like, Puyi has no control over anything. He can't do anything. That's kind of the point of it. And I just think it's interesting to focus a narrative around such an, uh, such a passive character, but I think it still works, you know, because I guess we kind of all are Puyi yeah, trying to, yeah you know, work through all the changes that are going through China during these years, you know, and navigating all that. Also, I mean, you can, if you want to take that that comparison, you know, most of us are not going to have the upbringing that he did. Yeah, but, yeah. but we, you know, I in earlier in life, there is this feeling of, I'm very important and I can do anything and mm-hmm. I w- I'm going to take over the I'm going to take the world by storm and and um, be famous or whatever you know our hopes and dreams are and as you become older you kind of come down to earth right. and um, 
And so while his journey might be a very extreme version of of that, I think most people, you know, end up going through that and then, you know, ultimately landing in this kind of humble place. And humble, that's such a good word to describe it because we literally see Puyi go from being an emperor of China to being a gardener. And the funny thing is, as a gardener, that's the happiest we see him. And I think that's beautiful. There's something really poetic and wonderful about that, that he's finally able to find happiness in the later years of his life doing Mm -hmm. something as simple as attending to people's plants. You know, I just think that's really cool. I think that's, yeah, it says a lot right there. Um, Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the best picture race here because I think this is one of our stronger best picture categories that we've had in a little while at least. You know, the only one I haven't seen is Hope and Glory. I'm so sorry I didn't watch that one. But I know these other ones inside and out. So I do want to, I kind of want to know. I want to know your thoughts. Let's get into this debate. Do you think The Last Emperor deserves best picture? Just Best Picture. We can still give The Last Emperor all the technical awards that it definitely deserves, but Best Picture. I don't have a problem with it winning. Okay. It doesn't... It, this isn't something that I, I feel strong about enough about to take away. Um, of these movies, I still would say Broadcast News is probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. But I also think Last Emperor seems more like a Best Picture winner. Um, I, I'm not going to give it to Moonstruck. Um, Moonstruck's fine. I don't, I'm just not going to give it to it. Um, Fatal Attraction, I, I, I think it's a really, it's just not a Best Picture winner. You know, I don't know. It doesn't feel like it to me. But, um, you know, there's just certain <laughs> movies that feel like, I, I don't know. Hold on, I don't hold think... on. Let's, let's back up for just a moment. Okay. Let's talk about Fatal Attraction. Okay. This was a big movie. Huge, oh, it's huge. It's and kind of created that sort of sexual thriller subgenre. Yes. And in my opinion, has Glenn Close's best performance. She would be my pick for leading actress. What am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Yeah, she should she should have won. You're you're correct. Absolutely Sorry, Sherry. Absolutely should Sorry. have won. Because Cher. Cher, is, Cher is beautiful in Moonstruck. She's funny, she's charming, she's everything she needs to be. But Glenn Close is downright horrifying in Fatal Attraction. I mean... She just commits. She commits, commits. through and through. And I will go one step further, Rance. Fatal Attraction is my best picture of 1987. Okay. I, I, I could watch this movie any time of the day, any day of the year... I don't care. I never get sick of it. I don't know what that says about me, but I fucking love Fatal Attraction so much. Well, <laughs> God, I love this movie. I mean, uh, if uh, we can, we can maybe go back and give Cher an Oscar for Silkwood. I would be <laughs> for, okay with that. Honestly, I think she's supporting. brilliant, Silkwood. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it's funny, you know. Um, Cher is such an iconic winner, and her outfit's so iconic, and the moment's so iconic that. It, but it's hard to separate and then realize. But like, what is the best performance in this category? Hundred um, percent. I mean, my I, God, I how think, can give it to Go Glenn ahead. Close? Give yeah. it to Glenn I, Close. And, uh, you know, the, what I was 
going towards is that Fatal Attraction doesn't feel like the genre of a Best Picture winner, which is a really hoity-toity thing to say. Yeah. And um, it just, like, usually uh, we we turn the genre that wins on its head so infrequently. Um, Fatal Attraction would have been a really funny, really funny, really fun way (laughs) to do that. Um, But I think the stronger horror-tinged Best Picture winner is coming up in a couple of years. Good evening, Clarice. Very true, very true. I mean, I honestly think it's even shocking and surprising that Fatal Attraction is nominated nominated. for Best Picture. You know, I think that in itself is kind of incredible. I also, I am one to, if Last Emperor had not won Best Picture, I'm not sure it's something people would still discuss. Mm. Um, Fatal Attraction did not need to win Oscars to be the iconic film that it was. And sometimes I think winning Best Picture is is about keeping it alive in the conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, definitely. And it's also like they kind of want to, the Academy wants to choose the strongest representative for movies as a whole. And I think giving it to Fatal Attraction isn't saying what they really want to say. You know, I mean... Yeah, Fatal Attraction is kind of a messy movie. It's, you know what I mean? It's very different from Your Last Emperors, right? It will not be ignored, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) My God, there's just so many iconic moments in Fatal Attraction when she's just sitting there clicking the lamp on and off. Uh, I was reading an interview that Glenn Close did one time about Fatal Attraction, and even before she took the role, she went to multiple psychiatrists in um, like institutions and whatnot and asked them, uh, showing them the script, and basically said, is it actually possible for a human being to do this? Would a human being act this way? And a lot of them told her, like, well, if it's this condition, this condition, we can see this happening. So it wasn't until she finally got confirmation from doctors that this person, this character, could, could feasibly exist. exist yeah. She said, okay, now I can do the parts. And, I think and that's then fabulous. she went out and bought a rabbit. And, and she did. <laughs> and a little negligee. You don't want to know the commitment she put into preparing with the... Uh, rabbits no i'm kidding i also feel like um, fatal attraction is such an 80s movie it i mean oh, between so like 80s you know what i mean like the hairstyles the clothing the cars they drive uh the technology they use it is so 80s and i think it's um it's kind of a fun time capsule every time you rewatch it mm-hmm. um to see all that stuff kind of flash up i love that oh i've been in and i've been in such an 80s place recently that i oh. i totally dig that I'm, I'm watching the old show moonlighting right now okay yeah yeah i'm in a very 80s place at the moment well good because that's still the decade we're in (laughs) yes um although we only have two more years left in this decade um but but we're gonna uh, but we're not gonna discuss the um 88 best picture winner yet because we got something special planned for you guys what's that Tell me more. Uh, we're we're gonna mark. Uh, we always we always do our anniversary list, and we're gonna have one next week. And I don't think we've determined how many we're going to do. We'll talk about that off podcast. But Sam and I are going to rank what we believe are the best Oscar 
Best Picture Losers mm. for our next yes. anniversary show. And um, you might end up seeing something like Fatal Attraction on that list. Who Absolutely. Knows? Yeah, so those are the guidelines. It only has to have been nominated for Best Picture and needed to lose. But any Best Picture nominee that we feel like is strong is what we're going to be ranking here. I think we'll probably do, like, 2025. We'll, that sounds good. We'll, uh, you'll find out next week, but... And I'm like sure, that. and I'm sure, our dedicated listeners probably already know a handful that both of us are going to be picking. <laughs> We've made they our know, cases over and over. They know this is the the unofficial heiress po- podcast. <laughs> they know. <laughs> God, why is that going to be number one for both of us? <laughs> I don't think it'll be my. I don't know if it'll be my number one, Sam. I don't, I don't know, know if it will either. I'll have to really go over and look over it. It'll um, probably be in the top ten. I don't think it'll. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. There's going to be... It'll be fun. It'll be fun. What it decade do you fun. think will be most represented on Ooh. on your list? I really have a feeling it'll be... It might be the 50s. Okay. Oh, That's, maybe. I feel like mine will probably be the 40s. Yeah, I was. that was my next one. But now I'm thinking about the 60s, and there's a lot in the 60s, too, that I like. Oh, no. The 60s? Oh, man, because the 60s has that has, mm-hmm. has 67. And yes, um, there's also some movies I really like in the 70s, too, I so know. I don't know. This might be pretty um, spread out. I don't know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll even try to pull a few from each decade and not have all 25 from one decade. <laughs> yes, something like that. I'll try um, and make it nice and even. We'll see what we'll see what oh you know what we should do this just mm. came to me we okay. may need to do this is more but we may need to do 30 just so it equals 60 cuz then we we both do 30 and then it's 60 total we'll just oh, have to I go through like them that. we'll go through them faster oh we will that's very true <laughs> it'll be that's totally true. fine um but you guys listen to that next week um and then we'll return to our regularly regularly scheduled programming and um the movie Rain Man, which was the first best picture I was alive for. Oh. Um, ooh, um, the week after that. We will see you then. <laughs>